Hello, and welcome to Thrive with Shirlane McRae. In times of great stress and tragedy, where do people turn for support? Shri Ram Jaya Ram Jaya Jaya Ram Ram. Shri Ram Jaya Ram Jaya Jaya Ram Ram. So many people rely on their faith and their faith communities to get through the most difficult periods in their lives. And while social distancing may prevent people from gathering in person, communities of faith all across the country are finding new ways to connect and remain spiritually close to one another. As our ancestors sought connection and protection, joy and celebration, so do we. Good morning, Hope Astoria. It's so wonderful to have you join us in worship. Um, welcome to our live stream. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. In New York City, leaders across all religious traditions have been at the forefront of our work to end inequality and promote mental health for all. So it's no surprise that faith leaders are now serving as first responders for their communities during this pandemic and leading efforts to help people stay connected and well. My first guest today is Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. He is the Executive Vice President of the New York Board of Rabbis and Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Mount Sinai in Brooklyn Heights. Over the years, he has done so much to bring people of all faiths together to heal, especially in times of great tragedy. And as chaplain for the New York City Fire Department, he helps first responders cope with the emotional burden of their work. Rabbi, thank you for joining us. It always lifts my spirits to talk with you. Well, thank you. And uh, I've always enjoyed being with you and the mayor. Uh, and there is an inclusive spirit that you bring to that public arena where everybody there, regardless of background and belief, regardless of their faith tradition, feels that he or she matters. And that's something that we try to do in the faith community as well. Uh, no one is less important than the other. So uh, I thank you for the example, and uh, I'm thankful that we have faith leaders who are committed to making sure uh, that not only faith matters, that people matter. I'm grateful for you and for all of our faith leaders and how they are bringing compassion to all of us during this difficult time. We've always felt that people should never feel forgotten, should be isolated. First Lady, let's keep in mind that even when this pandemic is over, there are people who are still confined. There are people who face all kinds of physical and mental challenges who can't go out freely. And therefore, we have to, this has to be part of a regimen no matter what is going on, we always have to look at our, you know, our lists and say, who's out there that I haven't seen? Who's out there who needs a little bit of strength and support? So this is more challenging, but I think the foundation has always been there uh, for including people uh, in 
our communications and our connections. I like that very much. Do you actually have a list that you keep um, that you, um, yeah. you, you know, refer I, to to reach out to those you know who are yeah. isolated and alone every day? So when I first started as a rabbi some years ago, I met an older rabbi at the time. Now they're all younger rabbis, but I met an older rabbi. And he pulls out, <laughs> he pulls out an index card from his pocket. I know millennials may not know what an index card is. But he pulls out an index card, and there were names. And I said, who are those names? He said, there are people in hospitals, there are people at home. And whenever I have a chance, I call them to check on them. I said, that's, that's wonderful. And I started doing that. And then, of course, with technology, you can record names. But, yeah, I always have a list of people who need to be contacted. And, by the way, they're people of different faith traditions. Uh, you know, when you go into a, uh, a hospital setting to visit someone, uh, you don't ask the person, are you Jewish? Are you Christian? You go in because there's a person there who's hurting. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's been, I've always tried to be that spiritual connector. And I have to just add something. My family came to this country after the war. They lost their children during the Holocaust. I'm, I'm a product of their second marriage. I'm the only child. But the, one of the first groups to greet them were the nuns of St. Mary's Church in Lynn, Massachusetts. They didn't ask my folks, what's your religion? They probably knew they were Jewish but they knew that they were feeling somewhat isolated. So maybe that spirit was inculcated within me at a very young age that others reach out to you to make you feel included, to make you feel that, you know what, you're someone also, and uh, we're all in this together has become the phrase of, of this time. So yeah, I, I think it's important. I think we can't take anybody for granted. That's a very powerful story. I'd like to know, Rabbi, what has this quarantine been like for you? Well, firstly, I begin every day, you know, with prayer. And if you look at prayers of all religious traditions, they are prayers of gratitude, prayers of saying thank you. And I think that if we begin the day with an appreciation for what we have, instead of just focusing on what we don't have, that makes a major difference. So there's prayer. There's also the number of calls you make. Obviously, you're on conference calls and personal calls. But yeah, you use time for reading, for self-development. You say, I'm going to use this period to maximize my potential, to build my inner self as much as possible. So that when you go to sleep at night, you say, you know, today has been a good day in terms of there are more pluses mm -hmm. than minuses. And I think if you have a regimen for each day, you say, I want to read the following. I want to call the following. I want to pray. You know, know that you have a day so you're not just hanging around. You're not just watching, looking at the clock. You're looking at what you need to do to be productive. And I think it enhances your, you know, your inner, your inner strength. You feel I didn't waste the day because you don't get the time back. You know, somebody once said to me, I went to law school when I was in my forties. And I said to a friend of mine, gee, 40 years old, I'm going to start law school. He said, Joe, you'll never be younger than you are today. <laughs> That is great advice, making every day count. And I, I love that you talked about beginning your day with prayer and especially prayers of gratitude. I think that um, in addition to uh, kind of wasting time, sometimes we also forget to appreciate what we have. And I know that I, I have so much. I have so many blessings. And I, I try and make time in the morning to to start counting them, you know, I, I feel like I have more than I can count, uh, which is a blessing, but I at least, you know, make a list 
of what I'm what I'm appreciating the most. You know, the psalmist says, "Teach us to count our days, that we we may acquire mm -hmm. a heart of wisdom." And I think a lesson, right? If you count your days, then you become wiser as well, because each day you learn something that you didn't know the previous day. I have to tell you, for many of us in the clergy, we didn't know what Zoom was three <laughs> months ago. We didn't know. We didn't know Zoom, you know, Google Chrome from Safari, from all these other things. We became techies. But I was telling one of your t members of your staff, I said, how gratifying is it that we were able to learn to adapt to these new conditions with, you know, using technology, a technology that we didn't know before. So we're, we're all, you know, learning as we go along. Matter of fact, one of the great compliments in Jewish tradition is to call somebody a learned student. If you all your life can be referred to as a learned student that you never know at all, you know, as my father taught me, maybe is one of the best words in life because maybe the other person knows more than you do or as much as you do. Maybe <laughs> you don't know at all. Uh, yes, yes. You know, my mother used to say that every day is a school day, if you're paying attention, that is. <laughs> Rabbi, you know, we're, we're all looking for ways to, to get through this period of crisis, and you have some amazing tools. But I'm also wondering what lessons the past has for us. This is not the first time our, our city or the global community has experienced tragedy. And you played a powerful role in, in helping our city, and especially our first responders, cope with the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Can you can you tell us about that? And do you see any parallels between then and now? You know, years ago, it was uh, Elie Wiesel, who's also a Holocaust survivor, who said, when you're born, you begin life. But you have to also learn when you go through very challenging times, you have to learn how to begin again. And I think there is a major lesson for all of us that when you have to confront a tragedy. 9-11 was such a tragic time for all of us. But when you work with people and you, you bond with people and you say, look, we, we need to begin again. We can't let this be the last chapter for us. That kind of strengthening spirit uh, and resilient spirit allow you to, to face the day with, with hope. So I learned from 9-11 that you know, we can't allow tragedy uh, to have the final say. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting Jewish tradition. When you look at the Talmud, which is an explanation of the Bible, it begins on page two. Ooh. There's no page one in the Talmud. If you look at the Bible in Hebrew, the first letter is the second letter of the alphabet. It doesn't begin with the first letter of the alphabet. And right, and maybe that says to us, you gotta learn, <laughs> you gotta learn page two. You gotta oh, yeah. learn that sometimes page one is taken away from you. And you know, when you're a parent, we all know this, you better have a plan B. Plan a sometimes <laughs> yes. it's not, not the one oh, yes. you know, that you're going to be able to, uh, to use. So from 9-11, uh, I met people, I can tell you, there's a him, John Vigiano Sr. He died recently. He lost two children on 9-11, two children. One was a firefighter, one was a policeman. And I said to him one day, and I became fairly close to John, devout Catholic. I said, John, does it challenge your belief in God? He said, Rabbi, God didn't kill my children. Terrorists killed my children. 
And what John did for the rest of his life, he went to Walter Reed Hospital to bring hope to patients there. He went to Iraq and Afghanistan to speak to soldiers there. And he taught them how you can't succumb to passive resignation. You can't give up. There is going to, you have to look at tomorrow. I asked my father years ago, how'd you survive in concentration camps? How'd you do it? He said, I always knew there was going to be a tomorrow that would be better than today. And I think that kind of hopeful spirit is something that's embedded in our, in our faiths. Uh, it's something that, you know, uh, we all believe that it, it, it can be very bitter now, but bitter will become better. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of attitude. And I think that's what gets us through these days. You know, someone said to me recently, I guess um, there's no security in my 401k. There's no security in my, my paycheck. Security is found in my belief in God and my belief in humanity, in the goodness that we uh, demonstrate to one another, that uh, there are those who will always be there when we're falling, you know, to pick us up or to maybe to prevent us from falling. So 9-11 was, a, was a, a great learning experience for me and meeting families who lost loved ones. But they said, look, I, you know, I remember one woman said to me, uh, God gave my son intelligence, gave him charm. Why didn't he give him more years? And I said to her, I wish I had an answer. But she said, I don't have one either. But I'm thankful for what I had. I'll mourn my son. But now I'm going to help others uh, who are mourning their children. So together we can rebuild our lives. That, that's the spirit of people uh, of faith. That is the spirit of people of faith. And, you know, I have this image of you uh, at ground zero every day for a month after a 9-11, and, and even standing there, sounding the shofar to, to lead a commemoration of Rosh Hashanah, that's a powerful, powerful image for me. And also the image of you and members of Mount Sinai staff and congregation in Brooklyn Heights serving as a triage center for people walking from Manhattan over the Brooklyn Bridge. So much of that is about you know, people being able to come together physically. And I'm just wondering, what ideas do you have for responding to this crisis in a way that, that, that makes us stronger going forward, that does not, does not require you know, the coming together, the physical coming together of, of, of people? How can we partner with communities of faith and other communities to meet the, the spiritual needs of people, the mental health needs of our people when so much of our health and safety requires that we stay apart. So I got to tell you two quick things. Firstly, when we were at a Ground Zero, Russia shot us sounding the chauffeur, Cardinal Egan was there. And I don't know if it was the first time he heard a chauffeur, but it was the first time I ever sounded a chauffeur in the presence of a cardinal. Mm -hmm. And the other story is that when Hanukkah and Christmas came together, you know, after 9-11, that December, we said we're going to have you know, the Christian and Jewish symbols at ground zero. And I remember the Christmas tree was brought in, and it must have been about 20 feet high. Now, the Hanukkah menorah is never 20 feet high. The highest, <laughs> right, no. the highest one we have is nine feet. And suddenly, a group of carpenters from the city of New York, uh, Brian O'Dwyer was, uh, was a lead person in that in bringing that group together, they were, they were all Christians. And they looked at that menorah and they looked at the Christmas tree and they said, wait a minute, that height disparity is troubling to us. So what did they do? They built a platform 
so that the menorah and the <laughs> be the same height. And you walk away from that and you said, wow, we're equals. We're equal, right? <laughs> and and you go, so I use that. You know, there isn't a week that goes by. I don't speak to the Cardinal or Reverend A.R. Bernard or other faith leaders of all different traditions. And I find that so um, exhilarating that I, that I can reach out to others as equals. I don't have to compromise who I am. But I know there are other people who are caring and compassionate and, you know, really uh, want to do what they can to help others. We're in this helping one another. That is a very positive thing. You've taught all of us that talking about mental health is not should not be a secret. Uh, it should not be something no. that you whisper behind closed doors. So I think mm -hmm. we're, we're, we've learned that it's okay to admit weakness. We don't have... You know, we're, we're not all perfect. We're not all strong. We're going to have days when we have that feeling of anxiety and some may feel somewhat depressed. And that's okay. But now, First Lady, what you've been able to do is you've encouraged us to talk about it. And when we talk about it, if we don't find immediate answers, then seek out professionals who have the answers. And that's why clergy, they have resource sheets. They have materials you've given us you know, who to call, what to say, and what not to say. So I, I think this recognition of the fact that all of us, you know, can openly admit to our deficiencies and to get together we'll find some answers is a way to look at this. So you don't feel this is hopeless. You don't feel nobody cares. On the contrary, there are people who will offer hope. There are people who will uh, care. And you realize there's going to be a tomorrow. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for darkness and the Hebrew word for dawn are the same. Same word. Because if you wait long enough in the darkness, there'll be the dawn of a new day. And uh, I think... Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. That is... I, I love you that. You think of all the people out there who are risking their lives for others, mm -hmm. to rescue others. Think of the healthcare professionals that we took for granted they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they want to honor their fellow human beings. They have a certain love. When you read those stories, when you encounter people who have that uh, limitless or that boundless measure of love for you, how can you not, you know, have a day where you say, I remain hopeful. I'm going to get through this. As tough as it is, there's going to be a tomorrow. So uh, I think we've all learned that uh, there are resources, you know, there are resources. You, you've reminded that. You don't have to, you know, go searching in other places. We have them right here for you. Use your resources. That's right. We have, we have, we have many resources, and, and we don't want anyone to ever feel alone, feel like there's no hope, there's no help, because not in New York City. Uh, that's just, you know, that's not, that's not real. There's always hope. There's always help. And especially for our, our first responders. And I wonder, you know, you, since you do serve as chaplain for the New York City Fire Department, who has stepped up to do so much of the, the work around COVID-19, what are you hearing from them now? And what kind of uh, mental health and other support are they asking for? You know, it's interesting. When you talk to people on the front lines very often, FDNY, they're strong. And sometimes they're reluctant to admit they're hurting. You know, when you have that that macho spirit, when you feel, look, I got to be strong for someone else, 
you don't want to uh, admit that I'm, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, but I think now there has been a greater awareness that when you do talk about the fact that you, you are hurting, you're not inferior, and you inspire others to say, wait a minute, you're hurting, so am I. And uh, let's seek out let's seek out some of the mental health professionals who can help us, you know, with strengthen uh, our inner self, our our mental strength. So they're they're out there, and you know, you can't go through life without fear. You can't go through life without anxiety. It's it's how you handle it. It's what you do with it. I was talking to uh, some biblical professor, and he says, "Look at Moses coming to the Red Sea, and he starts praying to God." You know, at this moment, like they look at the sea ahead of them and all these people, well, what do we do now? And God says, Moses, you prayed enough already. Let's do something. Let's move forward. So it's not enough to simply pray to God because God has given us all kinds of wisdom and insights on how we can make life better. So I think the fact that people on the front lines rightfully are feeling pain, when you witness people suffering on a daily basis, how can you not be impacted? How can you not walk away and have that etched in your mind and in your heart? So again, we can be candid and being candid doesn't mean you're less of a person. So I think having the resources, having the ability to express, you know, how you're hurting is the pathway to rebuilding life. Thank you, Rabbi, for this conversation. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and experiences and your stories with us. I especially thank you for your, your humor and your compassion. I really appreciate you uh, for the person, for the professional, for the rabbi that you are. And, and I thank you for all you do for New Yorkers of all faiths. Well, I want to thank you for something. Whenever you come into a public setting, and I've been with you many times, you always walk in with a smile. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, what you, you make me in, laugh. You have a smile. I <laughs> say, you know, that's a great, that's a great strength. To to it's a gift because when you walk in with a smile, you know there are others who find it hard to smile, but when they see you and they know that you face all kinds of challenges and you're able to smile, then how can I not reciprocate and offer a smile as well? So you have that positive spirit. It's, you know, infectious. That's something that we can replicate and we try. So I thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. And let's do more together. Yes, let's do more together. Thank you so much. Are you finding it hard to cope with some of life's challenges? Well, you don't have to struggle alone. Any New Yorker who is grappling with mental health challenges or substance misuse can call 1-888-NYC-WELL or text W-E-L-L to 65173 for help. Trained counselors are ready to provide support by phone, text, or chat with you online. Help is also available in over 200 languages for free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My next guest, Minister Only Love Chika Alston, understands the power of faith to help people find healing, support, and justice. Among many roles, she currently serves as lead organizer for Urban Youth Bronx Connect, and she's a minister for an evangelism for Bethel, the House of Yahweh, a messianic Hebrew congregation in the South Bronx. Minister Only Love, thank you for joining us. I have to say, I love your name. 
Thank you, First Lady. Thank you for having me. My parents were very creative, <laughs> very creative. They were. What does your name mean? So um, I was the first girl and my mother wanted something with love in it. So her and my aunt passed around names until they got to only love. And then Chica um, was from my father. And it's actually the name my family on both sides call me. And in the Igbo language, it means God is supreme or God is above all. Mm. And so. So I have hold both names very dear, but I work a great deal um, with the Igbo in Nigeria. And so as one of the African Jewish communities I work with, so my father's like providence must have led him to give me the name. I, I believe so. It's a name that has a lot of weight, a lot of power and a lot of presence. Yes. And it always reminds me of home and of my family, especially when I hear Chica. It just remind, it just always centers me. Um, and now it reminds me of my travels to Evil Land and Nigeria. And then it helps me if I'm when I'm organizing with um, my African brothers and sisters, as soon as they hear Chica, it's like, <laughs> welcome home. <laughs> so, yes, it's a lot in the name. It is. There is a lot in the name. Can you please tell us a little bit about your congregation and, and work? So a large part of my work, um, besides being a faith-based organizer, an advocate for about 13 years in New York and with sojourners in DC and other places, a large part of my ministry work is actually researching and teaching on African and African-American Jewish or on what some call Hebrew communities um, with a special emphasis on West Africa and the diaspora of West Africa. And um, my congregation is kind of in that lineage that started with Rabbi Wetworth Matthews right in Harlem with the Commandment Keepers, which was one of the earliest African-American synagogues. And then from that one synagogue, which is now many smaller synagogues throughout the city, um, there are various African and African-American um, Jewish communities. Some are more Orthodox or Sephardic in tradition or conservative, and some are actually Messianic. So my congregation is about 67 years old, and it was founded by Mother Mickens. Um, and we are really grateful to your husband, to the mayor, for sending a letter of um, honor for our 67th anniversary, which just happened to be the last week of Black History Month. But um, Mother Mickens was a woman and a faith leader, and she actually was a part of a small group of African-American women that taught themselves Torah. Some um, are there. They have, I guess their legacy are like synagogues that are more in the reform tradition, but some have um, messianic, have left behind left um, messianic congregations. So we are kind of in the Hebrew Pentecostal faith stream where we keep the Torah, we keep the Sabbath, but the worship is very um, African-American Pentecostal. And we have many immigrants in our congregation from the Caribbean, from West Africa, and then of course, um, African-American families. And we really try to be a lighthouse in the community. So um, we have a feeding program that feeds 
a couple of hundred every week and we just reopened, but with masks and gloves and safety <laughs> procedures and support from the city. But um, we do that. But we also have Inner City Lighthouse, which is a job training program that is housed in the temple. We have all this space. So we're really thinking about, okay, Sabbath is one day a week. What about the rest of the week? And then we um, do various community initiatives. And so um, and we also support um, sister congregations in the Caribbean and in Africa, but um, I'm the youngest minister on staff. So that's interesting first lady. Um, and so it's really been a journey for me organizing with clergy, even serving um, on the mayor's clergy council. And now I'm ordained. So this past, these past two years, I've been seeing, you know, both sides of ministry, the public prophetic ministry um, that many clergy in the city do, but also the private ministry, helping domestic violence survivors, helping those who may be struggling with mental illness and with COVID, you know, helping in a totally new way, helping elderly people navigate the internet so that we can still have Passover and um, have gatherings. But um, one, the best thing about Bethel is the kosher soul food, whether African-American, <laughs> Caribbean, or West African. So the mothers really hook it up. I'm not on that level yet, though, First Lady. I got to wait a few <laughs> more years. <laughs> I think that everyone has their area of expertise and, and talent, and no one can do it all. Now, I don't think many people actually know about all of this, that, that, that the... Um, that, that there are Black synagogues and that they are widespread. Uh, this is, I think, something that will come as somewhat of a revelation to many of our li listeners. Yes, and I spent about six years studying the African and African-American um, history of um, the, the rabbinical line and the Jewish leaders, or we say um, Hebrew, and that kind of encompasses, you know, a lot of different cultures all over the world. And what I learned is Harlem was a center for, um, you know, African-American Jewish life and in Africa and in West Africa and East and South Africa, there are vibrant communities that I've been blessed to visit um, to do some gender empowerment work with and to also learn um, about um, gender empowerment in Torah. I've learned a lot, but also um, I published um, a book that came out last year with um, Voices Publishing called Prophetic Worldwind, Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny, where we really chronicle the history and then think about what does this have to say for the Black movement for liberation, you know, in a wider sense, not just for a particular faith tradition, but the spirit of our people in general. And it's it's been a blessing to be on this journey. I think Torah is very much seeped in justice and tikkun in making the world you know, a better place that you don't just depend on prayer, but once you get up from prayer, you are going out in the world to improve it. And so um, it, it's a little, it's a little unknown part of New York City's diverse religious history, but a, a really um, powerful part. And the Board of Israelite Rabbis are um, the largest body of African-American rabbis. Their website is blackjews.com. 
and they, you know, marched in the march against hate. And many forgot that when the hate crimes were happening against Jewish congregations, that there were many African and African-American Jews and Hebrews who were very scared and nervous. I, I got messages from Jews that I know in Africa asking, are you all okay? So sometimes, you know, there's intersectionality. Um, that's something my generation really pushes forward. So, you know, when the hate crimes were happening, I knew mothers that were worrying, okay, I have a Black son who could be profiled because he's a Black boy, or he could be profiled because of his tzitzits, his what we call fringes in the younger generation. And yes. so there was a lot of fear that um, had to be processed in the community, which connects also to mental health. Like how do we as faith leaders help people process fear and even grief when um, hate crimes happen or when pandemics happen? Right. Well, you came to realize uh, through this pandemic that a large percentage of your congregation actually works in the medical field. I, and I'm wondering, um, given the rich legacy of faith and social justice work that you are a part of, how have you and your colleagues been able to rise and meet the moment? But one thing we are doing as well is um, checking in on people. So I actually had a deacon check in on me and um, Park Avenue Christian Church, um, which I'm not a member of, um, they but used to be they under Reverend Kaji, they actually called and did check in calls with everyone, including past members. So um, and then making sure that we're watching out, you know, if, for each other. Yeah, watching out for each other. If someone's not showing up, you know, checking in. Um, we have kind of a Harlem cohort that tries to check in with an elder that lives in Harlem, you know, and you really have to check in because people are grieving. Yes. If someone passed in your congregation, you would give them pastoral care. But many of us are grieving what this spring and summer could have been. And that's just as legitimate as any other type of grief. We talked earlier about the need for grieving spaces that when we go back to some type of normalcy, we know it will never be the same, but when we go back to some type of, of what we had before, that we may need community grief circles to help people process together what has happened and that people grieving will be the norm. And maybe we can even train volunteers or others to help with that because it does, it does require some skill. Yes. Um, one cultural tradition that I learned and actually did an online class for was um, I learned about mourning practices in West Africa or what some call the wailing women tradition in Jeremiah 9 and the Tanakh. And I did a course about those traditions and how they're even held in the diaspora. So for many um, Africans and African-Americans, mourning is a big communal affair whether it's the going home service in the South or the week-long remembrance of life in Africa. I was honored to be in Ghana when the Ashanti Queen Mother passed, and then a year later when they actually had her week-long celebration. And I mean, businesses had to close. I never, this was like, um, First Lady, the biggest homegoing ever. But, mm -hmm. you know, one part of the grieving that is hard for my community and my friends and even the community of Harlem is 
what do you do when you come from a culture that has this rich collective um, way of mourning and then significant people in your community pass away and you cannot do that. So I know there have been many Black faith leaders who have passed away in New York, some that were dear mentors to me in Church of God in Christ, which is the largest African-American denomination in the world. They have lost to date maybe 40 bishops, not to mention other members. And so for these people, there would have been huge going home celebrations that are now, you know, on Zoom or maybe five people in a funeral parlor. So it's really going to be important that when we can go back to the new normal that we do have, you know, grieving circles and we do have celebrations of life because um, that is a huge part of processing the loss together. And many are just grieving that they can't even do that going home celebration. The privilege of of caring for and serving others really takes an emotional toll on faith leaders, just like it does for healthcare workers and other first responders. How is the community of faith leaders you work with, how are they coping with the tremendous loss and trauma of this moment? I know it must be so very hard on on an individual level, but also on, on a collective level. I mean, you, you talked about the, the Church of God and the, the, the huge loss, 40 bishops. That is, I mean, I, it's hard to even imagine what that does to not only the individuals who are, who are close to the, those who are lost, but the group itself, the congregation. I think what individually as a faith leader, I'm being very mindful of my physical health, my eating, my sleeping, because when you're grieving, sometimes you may not be hungry for a whole day, but you you may need to eat. So having, even though I'm working from home, still having a schedule, still monitoring my sleeping, and also when I was processing the, the passing of Reverend Gwen Dangle, who I've known since 2008 and who was working on some of the criminal justice campaigns that I was, that I'm helping to lead, you know, I had a session with my counselor, who's a Haitian American Christian licensed therapist, just to process, because this is actually, though I've been faith organizing and writing and I'm preaching for about 13 years and even from high school, this is my first year of ordained ministry. So my first year of being ordained, we're in a global pandemic. And so I knew, I know that I have to really be on top of every part of my health. And I have a community of other millennial Black women that we schedule just sister chats, hangout times, but we also share resources with other faith leaders there's a lot of coming together online. And in a way, we're able to visit each other's services virtually in a way that we could not do um, when we were in the building. Mm-hmm. So one, um, one ministry, Zoe Ministries under Archbishop E. Bernard Jordan, they did something really unique within the first week of the pandemic. They are known for having a lot of um, prophetic voices in their ministry. 
They've been doing a 24-hour revival, but it's led by a whole team, a huge team around the country. And so I get on one of the nightly prayer calls. I thought it was going to be prayer or Bible lesson. And actually, the archbishop had some of his faith leaders who were licensed therapists on to lead a session about grief. So putting that session on grief and in the prayer call time and allowing the therapist to lead it actually sent a huge message that your mental health and your grieving process is sacred. And so that was one of the most innovative ways that I've seen a faith leader create a space for other faith leaders around this time. That is a really wonderful statement that you made about self-care being a, a, a sacred act. Self-care is a sacred act. If we do not take care of ourselves, uh, how, we can't possibly take care of anyone else. Um, and I think that we can't say that enough, that people have to, we must take care of themselves to be able to help others. So thank you for that. It's very sacred. And even Yahshua, who many know as Jesus in the Gospels, he's recorded going away alone on the mountain to pray. And then the disciples or his family, they come, they're like, everyone's looking for you. And he's basically like, calm down. I'm going to have my alone time. And that was a passage that really struck me during this shutdown that I have to take the time to take care of myself. If I'm going to be there for others, I also, while we're lifting up medical workers and faith leaders, um, I have a dear mother in my congregation that's a funeral home director. And, you know, in African-American culture, that's another huge part of our culture, those who lead our funeral homes. And she's been opening up to me about the struggles they have and the amount of bodies that they're seeing. And so I want to encourage anyone who knows someone in the, the funeral industry, or if you are listening and you're a funeral home director or staff at a funeral home, that you also take time for self-care and for counseling because um, it is secondary trauma, what we're seeing. And those who are handling the bodies of those who are passing on they are going to have a lot of trauma. It's hard to process it when you're in helper mode, when you're called to be a helper. But then when things kind of calm down, the grief can really crash on you. And so I would encourage anyone in that field to also take care of their mental health. Thrive NYC has tips on coping and mental well-being during the pandemic, as well as tips on how to stay connected to loved ones during this challenging time. To get help any time of day or night, text WELL to 65173, call 1-888-NYC-WELL, or visit nyc.gov slash nycwell. Thank you, Minister Only Love, for taking time to talk with us today. And thank you, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik and all the faith leaders who are serving as first responders right now. We need you and we need each other. Uh, we will get through this some way or another um, and some time or another, uh, but we know that to get through it, that we have to work together. So I appreciate your, you both taking time to speak with us today and please stay well.
As the rabbi and minister shared, faith leaders all over the city are stepping up as first responders in this pandemic. And I want to share with you one more story about the power of faith and community. Running a small business is anxiety causing in and of itself, but when you add a pandemic, you lose sleep at night. My name is James Kim, and I'm an owner of a restaurant called Sons of Thunder, along with my brother, John. COVID became real for us when a couple of friends of ours who owned restaurants in the Chinatown area of New York City started to see uh, real dips in sales. And us being perceived as an Asian, at least a, a Hawaiian restaurant, we had the sinking feeling that we might not be too far behind them. Sure, what was going through my mind when you lose 70% of your business? It's hard to put that into words. It's, you wonder, are we ever coming back from this? Is this the new normal? How does this work? I mean, the billion questions, rent, you know, how do you pay your people? You just keep playing it in your mind, you know. You start to get nervous and anxious about the long-term effects of something that we've never really dealt with before. As soon as stuff was happening, our faith community reached out to us, uh, especially my pastor, Christian Hernandez. He pastors a church out in the story called Hope Astoria. He texts me virtually every day telling me he's praying for me. And um, he and Hope have been an immense uh, source of support for me personally, and by extension, the team. You know, through one of the texts, Christian asked, hey, is there any way we can help the business? And then also, how can we help front lines? And, uh, and I said, well, you know, doctors and nurses aren't eating because, you know, they don't have the time even. And he floated the idea of making a donation uh, to us to be able to feed some of them, knowing that we had relationships with NYU. So uh, out of his own pocket, I think he donated something like $200. And we were able to feed about 30, 40 of the frontline workers with that donation. And we posted it on Instagram and uh, through some of our channels. And over the past several weeks, we raised uh, close to $30,000. And Hope Astoria uh, eventually ended up donating another $4,000. And up to this point, we've done over 3,000 meals. When you're as stressed as you are, as the frontline workers have been, to know that you don't have to think about food you know, that day when you go into work is tremendous. Um, to be fed is, is not just to feed your body, but your soul and your spirit. We really believe that. And so uh, we've heard tremendous feedback from uh, the front lines that uh, it's not only practically uh, supportive, but uh, morale-wise, it's, it's been huge for them. And I think there, there can't be enough said about being able to do something you love when everything around you is falling apart for some. And so we're so indebted to our community who have donated you know, tens of thousands of dollars, not only to us, but other restaurants, to be able to not only support the front lines, but the restaurants themselves. We're just super, super thankful you know, for our spiritual community who's been praying for us, supporting us financially calling us, texting, texting us, it's everything. Super grateful. Thank you to James and John Kim and team at Sons of Thunder. I also thank my guests and all the houses of worship who shared parts of their services with us, including Hope Astoria Church, the Hindu Temple of North America, Lab Shul, and La Puerta Estrecha. Oh